The following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are three weeks into our 12-week study on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is an ancient summary of the Christian faith that believers have professed together for the past 2,000 years. It is the fence that surrounds what we call orthodoxy or right beliefs regarding Christianity. So if you're within the fence, you're an orthodox Christian. If you're outside of the fence and you believe strange things about Christ or strange thing about Christianity, you are not within orthodoxy. And that is what separates real Christianity from cults and from false Christianity. And therefore, it's absolutely necessary for us all to know and understand what is in it. So if you're not a Christian and you are here because you want to know what Christians believe and you're kind of kicking the tires, so to speak, on Christianity, we hope this series helps you get an accurate view of real, authentic Christianity. Last week, we learned that there is no God but one. God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This morning, we're going to begin the second and longest section of the Apostles' Creed, the section on Jesus or on what's called Christology. God got one line, Jesus gets seven, all right? And rightly so. This section on Jesus begins with, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And let me tell you, it's the most important section of the whole thing. Hear these words from the mouth of Jesus himself, from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, you already see this unique relationship Jesus is claiming to have, are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas, later to be known as Doubting Thomas, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? In other words, what are you talking about? You're going, there's a room there, you're, making, you're doing some remodeling for us. I haven't seen you leave. I don't know what you're talking about. Where are you going to go that we can't go? He's talking, of course, about the right hand of the Father. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, but they don't understand it yet. 
How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you do know him and you have seen him. Now, immediately, Jesus' words here contradict a very prominent belief in our culture that Jesus was simply a nice teacher who basically taught what all other religions teach, and that is to be good to one another. Now, Jesus did teach similar ethical guidelines as other religious teachers. Obviously, he taught the golden rule, right? But Jesus wasn't just a nice religious teacher. That doesn't get a person killed. He got killed for lines like this, for claiming to be the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you hear how narrow, how exclusive and arrogant maybe that sounds? Actually, it's only arrogant if it's not true. Jesus claims to be the way. He says, I am the only way a person can come to know God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Jesus taught that every human being was made by God, for God, but the only way to ever really know God as your Father is to first know Him, Jesus. That's an audacious claim. That will get you killed, even in our society today. Or that will get you kicked off of YouTube. Second, Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus here claims to be truth incarnate. I would love to take you to John 1, 1, where the word was with God and the word was God and the word put on flesh and dwelled among us, that Jesus Christ is truth incarnate. If you want to know what's true, if you want to know what's real and ultimate and at the center of all things, you've got to know Jesus. Third, Jesus says, I am the life. This is nothing short of a claim to be God. Jesus says, I am the center of the universe. I am the heart of the galaxies. I am what's holding all life together. I am the source of life itself. Physical life, spiritual life, and of course, eternal life. If you want life, you got to know me, Jesus Christ. Now, again, this is what got Jesus killed. And it should cause us to ask, who is this guy? And this is exactly what his contemporaries said. Who speaks this way? Where does this guy get this kind of authority? Who does he think he is? So let's answer that question by going word for word through the creed. We said this morning, I believe in Jesus. Now, Jesus was given his name by an angel before his birth. The name Jesus, it's taken from Yeshua in a form of Joshua, and the name Jesus literally means the Lord saves. In Matthew 1, when the angel shows up to Joseph to tell him, okay, I know your wife's pregnant and you haven't slept together. It's actually the Holy Spirit. We're gonna talk about that next week. Uh, it does take an angel to prove this to a betrothed man, right? 
And this is what the angel says. She's going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus means the Lord saves. Jesus was given the name because he was going to save his people from their sins. Next, the creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ. Now, you might not know it, but that is not Jesus' last name. Most, many people think it was, all right? Just look up Christ in the, in the yellow pages and find Jesus' address, okay? Doesn't work that way. Christ was an Old Testament title of an office given to Jesus, okay? Think of president, CEO, Christ. And again, an angel gave Jesus this title also. Luke chapter 2, 10 through 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Christ literally means the anointed one. It comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew word for Messiah. In John 1, 41, when the disciples meet Jesus, they come back and say, hey, I found the one, the Messiah, who is also called the Christ. So Jesus is called the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, and the Anointed One. And all of these terms are meant to convey some aspect of who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. Now let me break this down really quick. The idea of a Savior or a Messiah or a Christ is found actually in some of the very first pages of the Bible. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, teaches us that God created everything good, and yet there was evil at work in the world. And that personified evil, Satan, tempted the first humans to rebel against their creator God, bringing a curse upon them and the world. And it was right after this first sin where God kind of pronounces the curse on Adam and Eve and on creation, and then he pronounces a curse also on Satan. And he says this to Satan. He promises a Messiah, actually first, to Satan. God says to Satan, one day a descendant of Adam and Eve will make things, I'm paraphrasing, will make things right. One day a descendant of Adam and Eve will conquer Satan, will teach people how to know God, and will be the rightful king of the universe. It's written in a very cryptic way. He says specifically to Satan, one day a a son of Eve is going to bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. The book of Genesis then traces this line of descendants. It doesn't trace all of humanity. It only traces this line of descendants in anticipation and hope for the Messiah. That's why we, we're going, we go, you know, we, we trace um, uh, Seth's line through Adam and Eve and we trace Noah and we trace Abraham and we go on to Joseph and we go on to David and we go on to these things. This is the line of descendants that everyone is kind of anticipating the Messiah is going to come from this, from these, this line here. And every time a new man would come on the scene from this line, there is hope that maybe this guy's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the Christ. He's going to be the one that makes it all right. 
And then we even see God specifically choose some of these men and he kind of does this new ceremony that comes on the scene and he anoints them. He literally has someone pour oil on their head and this is like a graduation ceremony or this is like you getting your diploma. This is an act that marks them as somehow unique, now set apart for God himself, for his service. And to be anointed in the Old Testament was to be a set apart for God. God anointed prophets, God anointed priests, God anointed kings, three offices in the Old Testament to be his representatives on earth. Prophets were, were the mouthpiece of God, basically. They were basically oracles. They spoke from, God spoke to them, and they spoke the words of God and gave people direction. Priests were anointed to lead people in the right worship of God. You can't just worship God however you want. God wants to be worshiped in a specific way. God told people how he wanted to be worshiped. So priests taught people how to worship God, and they taught people how to make the proper sacrifices to cover their sins, to cleanse them so they could enter into his presence. And lastly, kings were to lead people and govern them in a way that reminded them that they were God's holy people. We are God's people. We don't live like the rest of the world. So kings were anointed to do that. The problem was that all of these anointed people, all the prophets, all the priests, all the kings, were themselves fallible and sinful. They had weaknesses and sins, and they often missed the mark, and therefore they were unable to fulfill their office perfectly. This is what you read in the Old Testament. Prophets fail. Priests fail. Kings fail. People fail over and over and over. And so the line, the, the line of descendants, it's just like one after another. Nope, 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 right? We like to celebrate these men of the Old Testament as heroes, and sometimes they are heroes in their faith, and yet they're very fallible, right? Just read the story of Samson, the greatest, strongest, most powerful man to ever walk the earth, and he was a complete moron, right? Over and over and over again, right? Why? Because we're meant to go, oh, maybe he's, oh, no, he's not. Oh, maybe, maybe. God, man after God's, oh, man after God's own heart did what? And the kingdom gets torn apart over and over and over. So when the New Testament writers right, that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, they are saying, in the words of the matrix, Jesus is the one. In the words of Star Wars, he will bring balance to the force. In the words of Harry Potter, I could go on and on, right? He is the one. Jesus is the snake crusher. He's the one the whole earth has been waiting on. He's the Messiah that is going to fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament. Every place, every man or woman failed in the Old Testament, Jesus will succeed. Jesus is the better Noah. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the better Joshua. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better deliverer. Jesus is the better prophet, priest, and king. Jesus sums up all the Old Testament in himself, and the whole Old Testament always points towards the one who's, who's still coming, and in the New Testament, it points back and says, he, Jesus is the the one that was promised in the Old Testament. It fulfills it all. He's the Christ. He's the ultimate prophet who tells us the words of God. Actually, he is the word incarnate. 
He's the ultimate priest who can cleanse us once and forever from our sins and teach us how to get back in right relationship with God. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate king who will establish his eternal kingdom, drive out all evil and injustice, and he will rule forever in justice and love. This is what it means to be the Christ, a little bit more than a last name. Jesus is the answer to all of humanity's problems. And I don't say that, I don't just throw that out there. I mean that in every sense of the word. He is the answer to all of humanity's problems. He's the one the earth itself has been waiting for, as it says in Romans 8, 22. That creation itself is groaning. Now, why what makes Jesus so special? How can he be the one? How can he be the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah? Well, the creed answers that for us by reminding us of two things. Who Jesus is in relation to God and then who Jesus is in relationship to his people. Okay, let's look at both of these. First, let's look at who Jesus is in relation to God. Look at the next few words of the creed. His only son. So God the Father, creator, God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, Jesus is his only son, the only son of God. Let's go to the probably most famous scripture in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life Jesus is the unique one and only son of God now why does that matter well to put it simply it matters because salvation the ability to make humans and God right again and bring humanity in right relationship with God. That's what salvation is so that humans can now relate to God in a way other than judge. Salvation is from the Lord. Now, what, what does that mean? That means no human being could do what is necessary to make themselves right with a holy God. No human being could do what is necessary to save themselves. Why? Because we're all infected with this sin sickness that leads to death. So God, John 3.16 tells us, and then 3.17 tells us, God, who eternally exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by the way, this is called the Trinity that God is always one. There's one God, and yet he exists in three persons. And I could get into all that, but instead of getting into all that, I'm bringing in the smartest guy that I know, a theologian for Porterbrook, and he's specifically going to talk about the Trinity. And so you do not want to miss out on the opening seminar day for Porterbrook. I'm just going to put a pin in that and let him deal with all the crazy stuff, okay? But here, here's what I want us to see. <clears throat> God sent, that means father and son existed before Jesus was born. God the father sent his only son to do 
what no son of Adam could do. Jesus, because he's God, he's holy, he's sinless, is therefore without a sinful nature and therefore from birth able to perfectly obey God. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus is born of a virgin. We'll talk about that next, next week. But Jesus then remains sinless through his entire life. Though he's tempted by Satan, he's tempted in all the ways that we are. Jesus did not have a sinful nature and he never sinned once in his entire life. Therefore, here it is. He had no sin debt that he owed personally to God. See, we owe God everything. The way, Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. You sin once, you deserve to die. That's the debt. That's a debt we all owe to God. We've sinned, so we, we've been created first, so we owe him our life. And then we've sinned, so we owe him our death. But here's a beautiful aspect of the gospel. Because Jesus was sinless as the son of God, he had no sin debt to pay. That means death could not hold him. Death didn't have a hold on him, a grip on him. He was totally free to give up his life and then to take it up again and resurrect into new life. But Jesus, he, he didn't just die to show us some kind of cheap parlor trick, right? Jesus didn't just die to show us that he had power over death. Look what I can do. No, Jesus died to pay our sin debt. One of my favorite scriptures is this, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Jesus was sinless, but on the cross was made sin. He took, he took it upon himself. Now, why did he do that? Well, look at there. Who knew no sin? So G clearly, Jesus is sinless, and yet he's doing something with sin. He's taking it upon himself and marching to Golgotha with it. Why? So that in him, in Jesus, we believers might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is a great aspect of the gospel. Jesus became sin for us, so that we could become the righteousness of God. Now, what does that mean? Oh, we believe in Jesus and all of a sudden we become holy and sinless people? No, absolutely not. The righteousness we get is not our own. It's from God. It's his righteousness, but it gets imputed to us. It gets counted as ours. As the sin was imputed to Christ and counted as his, his righteousness gets counted to us and imputed to us. Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. It comes from another world. It comes from outside of ourselves. God gives it to us through grace. We become united and counted righteous in Christ. And then slowly over time, that righteousness gets worked into our lives by faith as we fight sin and grow in sanctification and holiness. 
But this righteousness doesn't come from discipline or willpower or moral aptitude. Though all those things will be needed, it comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has already accomplished for us on the cross as the only begotten son of God. And then lastly, we read, Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. So who he is in relation to God? He's God's son. Who is, who is he in relation to us? He's our Lord. He's God's son, but he's our Lord. This is who Jesus is in relation to everyone who trusts in him by faith. He is our savior and Lord, our king and master. In fact, the first ever Christian creed was simply Jesus is Lord. Now, what does that actually mean for us and for our lives? That's a lot of theology. There's a lot packed into that little phrase, Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. I've got three things, three things that it means for us, for our everyday life. Number one, salvation is found in no one else. Jesus says this when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I want you, I want you to hear this. Jesus is utterly and totally unique as the Son of God. Can I, can I just, people that, that posit that there's other ways to God, that there's other religions or other ways to be made right with God. Oh, Christianity, that's your way, but then there's many different ways to be made, with, made right with God. That claim is absolutely absurd when you understand the claims of Christianity. The claims of Christianity that Jesus Christ was sent from the eternal God to become incarnate on earth as the one and only son of God and to die a substitutionary death. If God did that, what, it doesn't make sense of any, any other religion. Listen, do you think God would have killed his one and only son if people could be saved by simply trying to be better people? Let your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. If that's true and you can be saved by being a good moral person, then Jesus, then God is a monster for sending his one and only son to die. If people could be saved by just being nice, then the cross doesn't make any sense. If people could be saved simply by somehow becoming one with the universe or meditating in the woods or finding their center or whatever weird new age religion is out there, then the whole gospel is just overkill. It's just ridiculous. No. Salvation is found in no one else because no other religion has the perfect sinless son of God coming to live the life that we should live and dying the death that we deserve. This is why other religions, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, we reject them as not true, even though they do say high, high exalted things about Jesus, they all deny he's the son of God. They all deny it. 
That, that's a, we draw a line in the sand because if Jesus was just a good moral teacher, he can't die for sinners. His blood doesn't have that, that purity to pay the cost. We sing it over and over and over about how great the blood of Jesus is. Why? Because it's the blood of God. That's why. Many soldiers die for their buddies. That's not what Jesus is doing. He isn't showing us something just so we can emulate it. And, oh, yeah, true love lays their life down for another. That is true, but that's not the primary goal of the gospel or the primary means of Jesus laying down his life. The primary means was the one and only way he could bring mankind back into right relationship with God. Jesus is unique. Anytime somebody says that all religions are, are, you know, are equally the same, just go, hold on. That is an illogical statement. No, either Christianity is wrong or everyone else is wrong because Christianity says the one son of God, the unique son of God lived among us. And we got to deal with that fact. He lived for us and he died for us. But go back to John three sixteen. Let's read it again. We, we usually don't read 17 and 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Look, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Now stop. Why? Why whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned? Here's why. Because Jesus was condemned in our place. Not because God just decided to change his mind and be a lot nicer guy, like, like a dad who grows up and becomes a grandpa and realizes, actually, I can just give my kid all the sugar. It doesn't matter. Or my grandkids, right? Right? It doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter because you're not going home with them. You're not paying the dental bills. You're not, right? You're not at 10 o'clock petting, please go to bed, right? God didn't become some kind of eternal grandfather, right? That now just... Sins don't matter anymore. No, 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 no. The reason we can believe in Christ and not be condemned is because Christ stood in our place and was condemned for us. Now, how do I know that to be true? Keep reading. Verse 17. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. What does that mean? We're already under the judgment of God. We're born under the judgment of God. We're born under condemnation. The only way out of that condemnation is through the person of Jesus who is condemned for us. And this is the judgment. Uh, Never mind. I didn't put that up there, did I? No. I want to just keep going. (laughs) Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. The only son of God. How could there be one way? Because there's only one son of God. That's how. The world needs to take notice. This is why we send missionaries and we don't just hope that they can kind of come to some general sense that there is a God and cry out to him in tribes in Africa or in the jungles of wherever, the most remote parts of the world. No, they have to hear about the Son of God because there's only one way to God through his one and only Son, Jesus. Secondly, that's the first point. I'm doing all right. Second one, and we're going to go to our text this morning. (laughs) 
text our scripture reader read. <clears throat> Here's the second one. Because God, of who Jesus is, God's son and our Lord, no one and nothing else is worthy of our worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I give thanks, Paul, the apostle writing here. And let me just tell you this. this You've got to know this context. Corinth was a church with one step into hell. That's all I can say. Okay, one foot into hell. Corinth, people were sexually promiscuous. They were, doing, they were sacrificing to idols. They were doing all kinds of crazy things relationally. Uh, they, were, they were not a church that you would look at and go, that's what I want everybody to be like. They were like, it's like for a church planner, they were like, you, you planted that church in Corinth with all them crazy people who are like doing all that stuff? You'd be like, it was a long time ago, right? I, you disassociate yourself a little bit with them, but that's not what a, the apostle Paul does here to the church in Corinth. Listen what he says. I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Pause. Paul says, you know what? When I came to you and I preached the gospel, I watched how God worked among you. I watched how you became Christ followers and you gave your life to Jesus Christ. I watched the grace of God change you. And over the past few weeks, we've had several people come to faith at our church that have just absolutely blown my mind that I know God is at work in our church and I'm so thrilled about it. Now, Paul's saying this, even though now looking at them, they don't look like they're Christians at all. They've backslidden and done some stupid stuff. Keep going. That in every way, you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. That means God gave you gifts, and I saw those gifts. I saw you how you could share the gospel with one another. I watched how you understood the gospel and you had a knowledge that didn't just come from your natural ability, but it was a supernatural knowledge given to you by God. Paul's saying, God gave you spiritual gifts and I witnessed it. Verse six, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you right now are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. He's looking at Christians doing sinful, dumb things. And he's saying, I know you were saved. I know you're being saved. I know Christ is present among you. You're not lacking any gifts by his grace. And I also know God is going to keep you guiltless until the day of Jesus's return. He says this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, why do I say no, nothing else is worthy of our worship? And our worship, here, here's the reality. We all worship something. Something or someone has the top spot of our heart, gets the most of our thoughts, gets the most of our money, gets the most of our desires, our attention, etc. My position is, the Bible's position is, no one deserves that top spot but Jesus Christ, and this is why. Paul gives kind of three reasons here in this text, and I'm just going to make it really simple. Past grace, present grace, and future grace. He says this, 
Christ Jesus basically has already died for you and you believed in that and you've been saved. Praise God. Christ Jesus right now has given you gifts and is sustaining you and keeping you right now. He's keeping you in the faith right now. Present grace. No one else is doing that. And the third one, future grace. God will keep you guiltless. He's going to keep you and sustain you and present you guiltless before his throne because of the work of Jesus. Do you hear what Jesus has done for us? He's dealt with our past. He's dealing with our present and he's dealt with our future already. That we are here, not because of our own willpower, not because we had an outstanding devotion with the Lord this morning, not because we're here or in missional community. We are in Christ because of the work of Christ, past, present, and future. Nothing else does that. Anything that has saved you in the past, here's what typically happens. You, you, you need out of your life, and so education is going to save you. You find your education, you get your education. Maybe it gets you out of the poverty of your childhood, but here's the reality. What's going to keep you there? Your own performance. What's going to determine if you're successful in the future? Your own effort and performance. You got the gift of education and now you got to maintain it. You got the promotion. You got the name on the wall. Now you got to keep it. Now you got to keep earning it. Not in Christianity. Christ got us our name. Christ gives us our name and Christ keeps us in him. Got some meat this morning. Last point. When we say Jesus Christ is our Lord, it means primarily Christianity is actually about surrender. I surrender self-salvation projects. What I just described to you was a self-salvation project. Education will get me a better life. Children will make me happy. Marriage is what I'm lacking in my life. Once I get it, finally I'll be a human being. Finally I'll be worthy of love and attention. All of those, they're good things, but we turn them into bad things when we make them self-salvation projects. All of them are attempts to be our own Lord. I can get my way out of the bad situation that I'm in. And our culture, you can watch podcasts endlessly that tell you that's the answer to life. Be your own Lord. Fight your way out of the pit that you, were, that you were raised in. You can do it through discipline and willpower. The Christian says, no, no, it actually comes through surrender. I can't be the Lord of my life. Christ is. I surrender the worship of false gods. I, I follow God's ways, not mine, not the culture's. I keep sports and my kids and all the good things that God gives me, I keep them under the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. So if, there's ever, if they're ever at odds, my kids get second place, third place, fourth place. My wife, my husband, my family gets second place, third place. I surrender the lordship of my own life. You know what that means? It means this. I, it's a humility that's created in the, in the heart that says this. You know what? I really don't know the way my life should go. 
I, I really don't know what I need. It's that kind of humility. And most of us, especially in the first half of our life, we, we determine something that we need and we will use anything in our power to get that thing that we need. So if it is the wife, I just need to get married. Marriage will make me happy. We will use God to get marriage. We will beg him, we'll pray, we'll go to all the singles events, we'll come to church, worship like this, looking around for, <laughs> for the cute girl or the cute boy, right? We will use God to get what we really want. But when we say Jesus Christ, our Lord, we're admitting, I don't know the way that my life should go. Like, like doubting Thomas, where are you going? I don't even, I don't understand the question, I don't know. We say that to God. I don't know what I need. Do I need the promotion? I don't know. I trust you with my life. Do I need sickness in my body to remind me of my weakness for, for me to call out to God? I don't know. But I trust you to give me what I need, not just what I want in this moment. Here's the deal. If you think you know what you need, you will always be anxious. Worrying that things aren't going to go the way you think they should. This child. It's going in a, in a bad way. What am I going to do? Listen, in Christianity... We see this in this text. Jesus of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day. Jesus gets us to the end. He is the one who promises to sustain us to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't strategize and maneuver our way to the end. Our answer isn't, one more parenting book. Some of us are so exhausted because we are living like we are our own Lord, that it's all up to me. My kid's salvation hangs on my obedience. How good was that devotion? How great was that catechism? How consistent have I been praying for them? It's not up to to us, it's up to Jesus Christ and he will never leave us or never fail us. He is the Lord, not us. Listen, when I believe and trust that Jesus is Lord, I will begin to experience a genuine soul level peace that cannot be explained. Listen how, Paul, listen how Paul says it in Philippians 4, verses 5 through 8, or 5 through 7, I think. Listen, begins with this. The Lord is at hand. Can I just say, what does the Lordship mean for us? The Lord is at hand. This is what Paul's saying. When you know that Jesus is present with you as Lord, here's the repercussions of that. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And look at this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now listen, this does not mean that I, as a believer, won't struggle with anxiety and doubt. But it does mean, listen, when I am properly submitted as, he starts with the Lord is at hand. I'll tell you when my anxiety stops is when I think the Lord is far from me. The Lord is gone. And now when, the Lord, when I feel like the Lord is gone, guess who steps up and becomes Lord? And Lord Justin says, you better get to work, boy. It's all dependent on you. Your family, your career, your finances, your church, your health, it's all up to you. And that weight causes a physiological response in my body. If that thought comes to me at 4 a.m., there ain't no going back to sleep. Adrenaline starts pumping, my heart starts pumping, and the little man inside me says, get to work, wake up, get after it right now. It, it's all up to you. Paul says, the Lord is at hand. He's not far from you. He hasn't walked away from you. He's at hand. Therefore, be not anxious about anything. Jesus is going to take care of me. Jesus. Now, again, let's just, let's just go back in time here. Let's just think about what he's done in the past. He never sinned. He beat the devil in the wilderness when he was starving, right? Passed every test. Jesus conquered Satan there. Jesus conquered Satan in the garden when he whispered, there's an easier way to do it. Jesus conquered Satan on the cross when the father turned his face away because Jesus became sin and God can't look upon sin. God turns his face away and he says, I don't know what you're doing, father. It feels like you're far away from me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I'll stay on this cross and I'm not gonna leave them and I'm not gonna forsake them. Jesus stayed there and beat the devil. And then... Wherever we're going to talk about where Jesus went on Saturday, it's coming, the place of the dead, descended to hell, whatever you want to say. But Jesus conquered Satan there too and said, I'm, I'm only here for a day because I'm going back. I've got, I'm the son of God. I conquered death. I defeated sin. Jesus has already done all that. Do you think he has the resources to help you in whatever problem you're currently experiencing? I think he does. And listen, Jesus bats a thousand. Like every time he gets to the plate, I mean, it's boring to pitch to Jesus, right? That's what Jesus does. He's never, he doesn't strike out. He's not going to strike out with you. Man, when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, the son of God, our Lord, we're saying, I belong to him. He's my Lord. He's watching out for me. He's protecting me. Father, I thank you for your grace. Past grace, present grace, future grace. I thank you for your son. Jesus, there's never been one like you. There's a reason we sing about you 2,000 years later. There's a reason billion people claims your name, stands under your banner. 
You are the Son of God, and you are our Lord, and you will return to judge the living and the dead. And we are all under judgment unless we are in Christ. I pray that those who don't know you would believe today, and you would wash their sins away, and you would give them new life, and you would call them to yourself. And for those of us who have believed and yet struggle, you've given us this supper to proclaim your, your death, your resurrection, your life. And in our anxious hands, you place your broken body. And in our doubting mouths, you pour your precious blood. And I pray that it would communicate grace to us this morning, that you are here, that you are with us, and you will never leave us, and you will never forsake us. And so we can experience peace. Jesus' powerful name, I pray.